0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. We are in week 11 of our summer message series uh, from Colossians called The Supremacy of Christ. If you've been with us throughout the summer, you know uh, each week we've been talking about how Jesus is completely unique in his authority, his power, his wisdom. The letter to the Colossians is one the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church He had heard of their faith and he is writing to encourage them. He's also writing because he's heard there are false teachers who are coming in to um, try to convince this new church that Jesus is good, but not quite good enough. And so they're coming to tell them, if you really want to be assured of your standing as God's people, you need to follow all of these forms of Jewish law and religion. And so Paul writes this letter to declare once and for all, both to the Colossians and to us, Jesus is enough. His thesis statement for the, the whole letter comes in Colossians 1.17 when he tells us that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so what we've been looking at all summer long is kind of how Paul gives us this high and lifted up picture of Jesus. And then last week we started to shift in the, the second half of his letter uh, he begins to show us if this is who Jesus is, if he's the one for whom all things were created, if he's the one that holds all things together, then it's going to have some practical outworking in our lives. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about how that works out in our family, in our most intimate relationships. The week after that, we're going to talk about how it uh, works itself out in our careers and our jobs. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, and talk about the supremacy of Christ over our families. So if you have a Bible, you'll be able to follow along with me. Um, This morning's passage, though, we'll we'll look at it in just a minute. But the, the big idea it reminds us of is that new life always begins at home the grand truths that Paul has laid out for us about who Jesus is and the life that he calls us into. Um, you know he's, he's told us, hey, these bring you to the, the point of total surrender. They move you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. You move from enemies of God to becoming God's sons and daughters. He's painted this great and glorious picture of salvation for us. And now this morning, what he's going to show us is that because this is what Jesus has done in your heart, it now changes the way you treat your spouse, it changes the way you treat your treat your children, it changes the way you treat your parents. Uh, But we know that's true, but you also know, just like I do, that perhaps the most difficult place in the world to live out the new life Jesus has brought is in the confines of your own home, right? It's just, uh, in, in public, you can be nice because you don't want others to think bad of you. At work, you can be kind because you don't want to get fired, at uh, church, you can be gracious because you're just here for a little bit, and you can put up with it and then go home if somebody annoys you. But at home is where our worst faces are often revealed, right? We're looking for a place where we can just be ourselves, and that the problem for many of us is that when we let all of our guard down, decide, okay, I'm going to be completely and, and totally me, I'm going to be free, Problem is, most of us, when we let all of that down and we decide, I'm just going to be myself, it results in kind of the worst version of you, right? It's the ugly you, the angry you, the selfish you, the lazy you, the short-tempered you. C.S. Lewis, uh, who, in addition to writing the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote a lot of other really good things about our faith. Uh, So if all you've ever read are the Chronicles of Narnia, you should check out some of his other things. But he wrote um, an essay called The Sermon and the Lunch. And in it, he tells the story of going to church and hearing this pastor speak eloquently and and somewhat idealistically about the, the, the role of the home as a sanctuary. And he said, he just talked in these glowing terms of the way a husband and a wife love each other and they provide safety and comfort for each other and for their children. And he said, and then after church, I went home for lunch with the pastor and his family. And he paints this picture of two remarkably different stories. He said, he he painted this beautiful picture and then we went to his house and he was ugly and uncouth and his wife was whiny and needy and his children who were grown at this time were just horrified that this is what we've always lived with. And so he tells this really great story, uh, but in it he makes a a couple really good points. He says, first of all, what chiefly distinguishes domestic from public conversation, so the way we talk at home versus the way we talk in public, is often its downright rudeness. What distinguishes domestic behavior is often its selfishness, slovenliness, incivility, even brutality. And uh, I, I know none of us have ever experienced this. This is probably a, a unique, sorry, Peter, it's probably a, an English phenomenon uh, that, that C.A. Lewis was writing about here. But, but if you'll stop and think for just a moment, I think you'll see some pictures and ways in your own heart that this is true, right? So again, it's easy to be nice in public. It's harder to be nice at home. So think of it this way. After service, those of you who currently have kids at home or those of you who have had children at home, let's say you go out, go out after service and some child, a friend of yours' child or just a, a random kid from the church, maybe you don't even know, say they come up to you and they don't have shoes on and they say, will you please help me find my shoes? Now at church, your response is going to be, of course, and if it makes you late for lunch, you don't care, and if it takes you away from a conversation, that's fine, and if you're doing a particular job right now, that's fine. You'll you'll drop what you're doing to help this poor little child find their shoes that they've clearly lost somewhere in the building. You're going to be kind, you're going to be gracious, you're going to be loving. Now, moms and dads especially, same conversation takes place 5 minutes before you leave the house to come to church this morning. Can you help me find my shoes? Now, I've never seen this in our home, but I've heard in some places, responses might be along the lines of, are you kidding me? If you'd pick up your room, you, I'm never buying you shoes again. You, you're 17. Why am I, you know, there's all sorts of conversations you could have, but, but they all flow out of this thought of like, you are, you're literally going to kill me. How hard is it to put on your shoes? How hard is it to, I mean, I've uttered these words so many times, like how difficult is it to put your shoes in your closet? Because apparently it's like nuclear fusion, right? And, and it's just completely beyond the ability of an elementary age child. And, and so you see it in this, there's just, there's something that rises up in us when those closest to us have the most basic problems that would never rise up when it's someone that's not related to us. Right or, or imagine you go into work tomorrow and one of your coworkers comes in and they say, "Hey, I kind of backed into your car in the parking lot." Now for most of us, kind, gracious, you know, we're maybe on the inside you're thinking, "You idiot," but you're not going to voice that, you're going to say, okay, well, let's go outside and see what the damage is. And and you're going to go out and you're going to be very level headed. But again, imagine you're at home and either your teenager or your spouse comes in and says, I backed into the mailbox. Right? Yeah. Like the laughter is some some family who recently has had this conversation. I mean, I remember being 15 years old with my learner's permit and I plowed over a mailbox in my dad's suburban. And uh, I remember the conversation. And, and it was not, oh, that's okay, we'll work it out. It was a, this is why we can't have nice things kind of talk, you know? Uh, and, and, and some of you, you've had that too. I mean, you immediately, instead of saying, well, are you okay? Is the car, how, you know, it's immediately like, well, what, were you not looking? Did you know, we've lived here 15 years. You never noticed the mailbox before? it's always been there. It's big and brick. I'm sure this is wonderful. I'm going to have to work extra to cover the insurance. You know, there's all of these things that come up and you just see it in a thousand different ways. If, if I ask you, hey, do you know what the weather is going to be this week? Most of you are going to be kind enough to pull out your phone and look at it. If your spouse asks you while you're doing something, do you know what the weather is going to be this week? It's like, dummy, you got a cell phone? Look it up. You know, there's just all of the, and this is exactly what Lewis is telling us that sometimes the defining characteristic between the way we speak and act at home and the way we speak and act in public is simply it's rudeness. That we are short with those around us. And, and I, I get this, the protest of like, but can't I ever just be myself? Right? Do I always have to, Try to be nice. Do I always have to be compassionate? Do I always have to be patient? Do I always have to be loving? Can I never just let go? And, and Lewis answers this for us. He says, it will never be lawful to simply be ourselves until ourselves have become sons of God. Which is like kind of the same thing as saying, yeah, you never get to just be yourself. Right? Because yourself is not a good person. Yourself is a sinful person, and though we've been saved and redeemed, these old things still rise up, and so there, there becomes no space in which we lay down our identity as the sons and daughters of God and just decide we're just going to be ourselves here. Lewis goes on to say, home life has its own rule of courtesy, a code more intimate, more subtle, more sensitive, and therefore, in some ways, more difficult than that of the outer world. You see, a relationship with Jesus changes who we are at the most basic level. The supremacy of Christ over all things doesn't stop at the front door to your home, but it extends in the door and into the kitchen and into the living room and into the bedroom and into your children's room and everywhere you go, he is the one who's over all, who's above all and in all. And every person in your family that you interacted with, he is the one who created them for himself first. So what Lewis is telling us and, and what Paul is going to lay out for us here is the supremacy of Christ over all things mean that we, we do not simply clothe ourselves in the compassion, kindness, and patience of Christ when we go out the door. but We especially clothe them when we're inside the doors. And it's at that most basic level that the transformative nature of the gospel is most visible, starts at home, right? New life always begins at home. As we get into Paul's instructions this morning to spouses and children and parents, we have to remember the context in which he writes. We're going to look at just a couple short statements this morning, and if you just take them for what they are, they can sound like uh, kind of legal requirements of you have to do this. But again, remember, they are couched in the the language of Colossians where Jesus is the one who is the foundation. He's the one who's at the center. He's the one who's at the head. And so all of these things that Paul calls us to, he does not call us to them until we've submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. What he's trying to show us is that we will never meet the Christian ideal until we've surrendered our hearts to Jesus. So the very best thing we can do as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, is to surrender to Jesus every day, to allow his salvation to work deeply in us. And so my hope this week and next, especially as we talk about the supremacy of Christ over our families, is not that you walk away with just one or two little self-help pieces of advice that can make your life a little bit better but that instead we're reminded these requirements are so great, the only way they can be met is by having my life wholly surrendered to Jesus and his spirit empowering me to live this way. So with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, "'Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. "'Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. "'Children, obey your parents in everything.'" For this pleases the Lord. Parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Uh, Now, we're going to split these in two. Initially, I planned on doing it all in one day, but it it became apparent that was just going to be a a really long message. So, for your sake and mine, we're going to split it up. Today, we're going to talk about Paul's advice to husbands and wives. The next Sunday, we're going to talk about his instructions to children and parents. So Paul begins in verse 18 by saying, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now these, he just gives two one line sentences, one to wives, one to husbands. And if that's all that we know of Paul's instruction to married people, then these are going to be very difficult for us to understand. Thankfully though, one of the, the wonderful things about the scripture is that we can use the scripture to interpret the scripture. And so this passage in Colossians 5 has a parallel to it in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul expounds on this idea a little more. And I think it's especially important before we get into this idea of submission to remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 21. Now, now in Ephesians 5, 21 through about 25, he talks about uh, wives submitting themselves to their husbands. He talks about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. But before he gets into any of that, he starts in Ephesians five twenty one by saying, submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. And so this idea of submission is a tricky one, and, and it, we can react to it in a couple of ways. Husbands, it could be you see this on a screen on a Sunday morning and think, yes, finally, I'm so glad we came today, right? Uh, so, so just a couple of things, and wives, this is going to go for you in a moment. Husbands, this is not the point where you take notes for your wife, okay? It's not the point where you squeeze her hand a little tighter like, listen, honey, He's about to tell you some stuff, right? But, but what I want you to understand is we have to read this in light of Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Anytime a husband wants to use the scriptures as a tool to beat down his wife, it's proof there is something deeply wrong in his own heart. It means he's not looking for understanding the true ideas of biblical submission, but instead he generally just wants his wife to get off his back and do what he says. And that is not to becoming one. That is a husband that wants his wife to worship him. And the, the, the flaw with that is that men and, and women too make terrible gods. So Paul's advice to women here is not something that men can use to say, I told you, Paul said it, you gotta do it. But instead, it must be remembered, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But then you have to get into the idea and you have to, to talk about what does it mean when Paul tells wives to submit themselves to their husbands, it's an increasingly unpopular idea. There are uh, scholars and commentators who will tell you this should just be rejected entirely. That it, it's purely an invention of Paul's culture at that time and there is no redemptive quality to it. So we love the first half of Colossians. We enjoy parts of the second half. But we just completely skip over and eliminate three, chapter, chapter 3 verse 18 as just a, a cultural phenomenon that no longer applies to us. I think that's flawed, because, first of all, because we believe the scriptures are inerrant, that they are inspired by God, that they are useful for our our faith and our practice. Secondly, I think it's flawed because most of the time, that idea comes out of a flawed understanding of what submission means. When you think submission means that uh, you have to become some kind of weak or beaten down woman, then of course you're going to reject this. But there's nothing sad or passive about the submission that Paul talks about here. Remember, again, this command is rooted and built upon the foundation of the supremacy of Christ over all things and over all people. It follows Paul's statement that in Christ, we are all equal. There is nothing left to divide us or separate us or elevate one over another. And so I know this passage has been misused and abused by men throughout history to oppress women. And that's to the shame of the church, but that fault does not excuse us from applying the scriptures to our lives. As we read Colossians 3, I think we also have to be fair to Paul and understand that he's writing to a church that exists in a patriarchal society. The the church in Colossae lived in a male-dominated world where the man was the only one in the home with any legal standing. And so Paul's message of divine equality that he presented to us in Galatians that we talked about a couple weeks ago that he uh, presents to us as well in Colossians, the idea of in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, that message to the Roman Empire was extremely threatening. They, they often accused Christians of undermining the role of family and culture, of being the ones that were tearing households apart. And so Paul's point here in Colossians 3 really serves two purposes. First, it reminds the Colossians and us that a peaceful, Christ-centered home will be one of the greatest witnesses to the world around them. And second, much like with slavery, Paul plants the seeds for a church that will not be defined by male dominance Or by any form or expression of sexism. See, when men and women understand that all are equal in the sight of God, that all stand on level ground before Jesus, then the church can become a place where both voices, male and female, are appreciated and are valued. We also have to read the entire verse. Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This means that your relationship with your husband will be guided by a desire to please Jesus first and to please Jesus always, which means that it cannot be a verse that's used to cause you to tolerate abuse. It means it cannot be a verse that is used to tell you you must live like a servant or a dependent in your own home, but instead you submit to your husband out of your love for God, out of your love for him, and out of your husband's love for you. Now, again, with all that said, I understand, and and you do as well, we don't live in the same culture as the Colossians. And yet, Paul's instructions, I think, still have value. They are a reminder to us that when we enter into marriage, we lay down our rights, we lay down our privileges for the sake of becoming one with another person. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, reiterating Moses' teaching from Genesis, that When a man and woman are joined together in marriage, they leave their families and the two become one. Well, two people can never become one as long as they remain fiercely independent. If there is an ongoing power struggle and tug of war in marriage, you will never become one couple before God. You'll remain two independent people who happen to live together. And this is not God's plan. And so what Paul is pushing us towards, and especially what he's pushing ladies towards, is this idea of submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. In the same way you submit your life to Christ, so also submit your life to your husband. And again, men are not excused from this because as we've seen in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us submit to one another. There's an idea of mutual submission that's in play here. And so again, this idea of submission is not the obedience of a child to a parent, but it's a modest, cooperative demeanor that puts others first. The submission is another way of doing what we talked about last week, of being clothed in the character of Christ and his compassion, his kindness, his humility, his gentleness, his patience. And when we see submission this way, it's not a gross or demeaning experience. But it's another way for us to recognize there is one Lord, there is one King, and His supremacy extends over our home and over our marriage. And so we will allow our submission to Jesus to affect our submission in every other relationship. I know that's a a pretty quick hit on a complex subject. And so, ladies, I would encourage you uh, with this. Christian Chapel is full of mature and wise women many of whom have spent decades exploring what these ideas look like in real life. And so my encouragement to you would be if you are single and unsure that you can enter into a relationship where submission to another person is required, to talk with someone who's married. If you're a year or two in, talk with someone who's a little farther down the road. If you're 15 or 20 years in, talk with someone who's 30 or 40 years in and hear their stories, listen to their struggles, and hear how they have understood these ideas of submission to play out in their lives and how they've seen God's blessing as a result of it. In verse 18, Paul moves on to show men how the supremacy of Christ changes their relationship with their wives. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now again, remember, he's writing to a culture where men are free to do basically whatever they want. They were the unquestioned rulers of their home. Even the poorest man was the king of his castle. And Paul is telling them that their experience of salvation in Christ will change the way they treat their wives. His first instruction is a positive one. He says, husbands, love your wives. Now we take this for granted in our culture. We assume a husband will love his wife. But in Roman culture, it was not love was not a necessity for marriage. The primary function of marriage was a, a legal arrangement to produce legitimate heirs to carry on the husband's name. But Paul starts by saying, no, 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 it's, it's not that. The primary calling of marriage, men, is for you to love your wives. He expounds on this again in Ephesians 5 when he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So again, here we have this idea of mutual submission. You know, if, if women are to lay down to be cooperative, to be loving, to be kind, to be patient, it, it does not elevate a man as the ruler over his home who does whatever he wants, but instead Paul says, men, it's okay, your wife will act that way. You've got an even greater challenge. Love her like Jesus loved the church and gave his life up for her. When a man loves his wife that way, Submission is no longer an issue. It's not a power struggle to see who's in control. Instead, it is two hearts being joined together in mutual submission to one one another and to Christ. Paul's point is that when your heart is transformed by the love of God in Christ, you will love and care for your wife as a fellow image bearer of God. You will remember daily that before she was your wife, she was God's daughter created by him and for him. And so you love her and care for her as one of God's greatest gifts to you. Remembering that he made her to stand on equal footing with you before him, and so you love her. And you love her not in a generic kind of feel-good way, but you love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You love her with a self-sacrificing love. Paul begins with a positive, and then he also gives a warning. He says, do not be harsh with them. Perhaps the redneck translation of that would have said, love your wives and don't abuse her. Right? It seems like common sense, but apparently it was needed in Paul's day, and tragically, it remains needed in our day. In Tulsa County, domestic violence and battery is the third most charged offense in our court system. You can talk with our police officers, with our judges, with our first responders, our social workers, our medical professionals, our emergency room personnel, and they can tell you from their first-hand experience that there are far too many weak and sin-filled men who abuse women. Among all 50 states, Oklahoma ranks third in the number of male-on-female homicides, of all homicides in Oklahoma are related to domestic violence, and one-third of all women killed in Oklahoma each year are murdered by their husbands. 33% of police time is spent responding to domestic violence calls. When our world rejects the supremacy of Christ, women suffer because they continue to be the victims of weak, sin-filled men. And so even though our culture is different and and maybe we're not as overtly male-dominated as Paul's day was, yet we still live in a world where men, sadly, all too often, display their dominance over their spouse through various forms of verbal and physical abuse. And Paul cannot be more clear here. That has absolutely no place in the life of a believer. And so whenever we come to passages like this, I want to make sure not only that men understand that, but that women understand God did not make you to be a doormat or a punching bag. He made you to be his daughter. Loved and cared for by him and loved and cared for by your husband. And if you find yourself in an abusive relationship, you do not have to live in that fear. You can flip over your bulletin. You'll see my email. You'll see all of our pastoral staff's emails. You can shoot us one this week, and, and we might not be able to fix it, but I promise you we will walk with you to help you find a place of peace and safety, and you can sort it all out from there. But the message of the gospel is clear. If Jesus is above all and he's over all and he's in all, and if all are equal in him, then you cannot elevate yourself over one another. And even in your closest and most intimate relationships, you must continue to self to love each other in a self sacrificing way. And so Paul's abundantly clear to us, and, and obviously in our culture, this remains a need. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with him. And never use your love for her as an excuse for your harshness towards her. And so we know this includes all forms of violence. It includes all forms of verbal abuse. But it can also include all the detached, disinterested, aloof ways that a man can treat his wife. It can include the ways a man places unrealistic demands on his wife to be the one who makes him happy and healthy and whole. Paul pushes even deeper than that. This passage can also be translated, do not become embittered or resentful towards her. See, the supremacy of Christ over your marriage doesn't just treat, change the way you treat your wife externally, but it changes the way you think and feel about her internally. Paul is telling us, look, in marriage, you are going to disappoint one another. And when that happens, even in your frustration, do not react harshly, either externally or externally. Or internally. Do not let your heart become bitter towards your spouse. Don't let a few mistakes or a rough season of marriage poison your hearts towards the one that God has given to you. Instead, surrender again to Jesus, recognizing that He is the Lord over every moment, and ask Him to heal the hurts and the rifts that often form in marriage. See, I think Paul is very realistic in his advice to husbands and to wives. He knows that following Jesus changes our identity, but it can be hard to live that out in our marriage. And the the thing I want you to understand this morning, especially if you're married, is that Jesus is not going to give you a fairy tale marriage. Jesus will never turn your husband into Prince Charming. He will never turn your wife into the one who fulfills all of your dreams and all of your needs. But he can give you a grace-filled marriage. He can give you one in which you are compassionate and kind to one another. He can give you one in which you have the ability to love each other as Christ has loved us. He can give you a marriage in which you are quick to forgive, in which you seek peace with one another. He can give you one where you, in your heart, refuse to become harsh and bitter towards your spouse. And he does that by working in you first, by changing your heart, by remaking you in his image. As Christians, we have to lay down this false ideal that we will have a perfect marriage. I was even joking with Angie about it earlier in this week and it was Monday night, so I'd worked on early because we were gonna be at kids camp all week. And so Monday night, we were going to bed and I kind of jokingly told her like, now, hey, listen, I'm, I'm preaching about marriage on Sunday so I need you to be really nice to me this week. Like, I, I need to stand up there with confidence knowing that this is as good as it's ever been. Right? But even that, like, it was a joke, she understood it, we knew it, but even that reveals this flawed thinking that, that somehow has to, just for me to even talk about marriage, it has to be perfect. You, know, you find the same flaw in your own life of like, well, who am I to talk to my friends when, when I don't have it all together? But the message of the gospel is you're not perfect. You'll never be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. And so the solution for our marriages is not another five-step self-help program, but it is to surrender to the transformative and ongoing nature of a relationship with Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. If you take a legalistic approach to marriage of if I do these five things, if I know her love language and I express it daily. All right, if I say all the right words, if I buy all the right gifts, if I pick up all the right things, then life's gonna be perfect. Well, guess what? You can do all of that, she's still gonna be mad at you sometimes. All right, or wives, you can think, man, if I just, if I check all the boxes and everything is perfect and I can make him healthy and whole and happy, guess what? Some days he's still just gonna be a jerk there's sin that resides in all of us and each day Christ comes and he renews our hearts and he drives it up and he pushes it out and we are striving not for perfect marriages but for grace filled marriages where we are gracious towards one another where we are gracious in our speech about one another where we are gracious in our thoughts about one another where we're gracious in our feelings where our default response is not, I know what you really meant, but our default response is one of grace and peace towards the one God has given to us. And when we live this way, it makes all the difference in the world. It doesn't mean that you have the perfect home, it doesn't mean that you have a perfect marriage, but it does mean you don't have to become that harsh, bitter, angry couple. It doesn't mean you're always going to see eye to eye on everything and just kind of hand in hand skip through life. But it means that in every season, his grace will be abundant for you. And especially in those seasons of marriage where the ideal is lacking, where the time is not available like it used to be, where the feelings are not there like they once were, in those moments we remember. When the ideal is lacking, his grace is abundant. And so he comes again in these moments and he binds our hearts one to another. This is the promise of Christ to us. That his lordship changes everything. His salvation changes everything, including our most intimate relationship in the world.